Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda Palmer, where our mission is providing strength to the weakest among us, from both kids in foster care and their biological families. We also talk about topics that affect all children and families. It is our hope that we can inspire you to become the best bio, step, foster, adoptive, or whatever kind of mom or dad that you can be. Part of our mission is inspiring others to become amazing foster families as well, if that is your calling. If it's not your calling, great. Find a thing that sets your soul on fire and go be awesome at that. Let's make our communities great together. Be sure to go by Jason M. Palmer and check out the blog post and other podcast episodes. You can search Jason and Amanda Palmer on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else you get your podcast. If we don't show up, be sure to send me an email and let me know and I will try to get it on there. We'd love to have you leave us some feedback in the form of a rating and review. It really helps the show gain attention. Hello, and welcome back to Foster Care, an Unparalleled Journey. Today we've got Courtney and Tom Gilmore with us. Courtney and Tom are adoptive parents from Pennsylvania. As a young girl, Courtney was adopted out of, out of the foster care system into a problematic home. From early on, she knew that she wanted to give kids like her a better chance and ensure that they didn't have to go through what she did. Tom had a troubled childhood as well, but found outlets to escape in punk rock and skateboarding. Courtney and Tom met and became friends, but were brought together, volunteering, helping displaced families in New Jersey in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. On their third date, Courtney told Tom that she had planned to foster, and if he wanted anything long-term, he'd have to open his heart to that, or while they could have fun, they wouldn't have any future prospects. By the time they had their wedding celebration, they had their first placement in the bridal party, and Tom danced his first dance with Penguin, their foster child. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you guys are really deep into the foster care world. We, we've, we uh, you know, for as, as short a period of time as we've been doing it, we've really been in it, what, six, five, six years? Now? Yeah. We've had 18 kids through the house, adopted two, and, you know, Courtney's lived it her entire life. That's true. Wow. You guys are almost set, real similar numbers to us. <laughs> we, we, we have a couple more adopted out of that group, but, yeah, we're almost identical numbers, pretty close on years. and placements and, and all that. <clears throat> well, normally I would ask somebody like what drove them to foster, but I think we know that. <laughs> Sounds like Courtney had that made up in her mind. I did. I, I knew from a really young age being adopted. I knew I was adopted my whole life. They never kept that a secret, but I also was still around foster parents. Actually, mm -hmm. my godmother was my first, who was my first foster mother became my godmother. And she um, still fostered when I was a child. And at like 12 years old, I remember seeing her have a foster daughter in her home and she was kind of mean to them. And she would make the kids eat everything before they could go like play on vacation or whatever. And I remember feeling so heartbroken for her because she just wanted to be with the rest of the kids. So when the adults had turned their heads I went and shoved all of her McDonald's down my throat so she could <laughs> go and play with everyone. And I just knew that I wanted to be a different kind of foster parent at that moment. And it just stuck with me. It's a goal I had since I was very young to not necessarily do what I was adopted into, but I wanted to be a better parent. That makes a lot of sense, you know, having those dramatic moments. Well, Having those formative, I give it up yet, 
Sure, <laughs> right? <laughs> You'll get it. <laughs> Those formative experiences at a young age really do make a difference in, in who you become. Even our kids, you know, they've been through several iterations of our oldest son was going to be a scientist or no? An astronaut. An astronaut. A veterinarian. And, and then it was a veterinarian. And he was like, middle school, he had plans on doing the whole school. And that, and he found this program that it, since we're in a rural area, he could get school paid, like had all this plan and changed this and that. And, yeah, and just, you know, now he's a nurse, um, just left the U.S. Army with the nurse, the nursing program there, put him, put him through that. We all have all these ideas as we go up through those different experiences. But it sounds like yours really stuck. Yeah, it did. It absolutely did. It just makes my experience with bad foster parents was like a driving force for me to be a good foster parent. And then uh-huh. when, when my adopted sister became pregnant, I knew right away that I was going to have to step up and that was going to be like the doorway into it. I mean, that's really awesome. You know, I, I truly understand what, you know, where you're coming from being wanting to be a good foster parent. I, I came from a broken home. I was never in the system, but I came from a really broken place. And, and at a young age, I knew that I was going to do something, you know, I was going to change something for kids. I didn't know how, and I didn't know when, but I knew I was, you right. know, that, that always stuck with me because I just, I didn't want any other kids to ever feel the way that I felt. And that's what I say to Tom all the time when we would have placements is I, I seem a little too emotionally attached, but I was so disconnected from my adoptive mom emotionally that I didn't, I don't really know a healthy over attachment. <laughs> right. <laughs> Courtney doesn't do halfway. We go, we go 150, 200% pretty much. All the time. You know, that's awesome. You know, it's awesome because that's what our kids need. We need someone to go 150% for them. Right. They deserve that. (laughs) (laughs) So that's really awesome. Well, you know, it's funny, your story, um, if if you think about it, if you look at, well, and if you're listening to the podcast, you can't really look because you're on the, you're on the, that picture right there. He's got way more hair now. Um, And he's actually, that's the, the little boy who gave the interview that you guys heard on the podcast. That's Turtle. Turtle is, let me get this right. Amanda had a half sister with her mom. She had a half sister through her dad. Amanda and her kind of grew up around each other, but they weren't really blood related, but they called each other sis off and on, you know, grew up kind of around each other through the years. And Turtle was her little baby. Now, you know, the heroin, and if you listen to the podcast at all, you'll find out really quick that, you know, heroin's not very good for you. Yeah, it's caused a lot of problems. <laughs> Turtle's yeah. our baby. Yeah. That's my baby now. There's a reason he's tattooed on my body now. Oh, <laughs> well, it was funny because we did listen to the Turtle podcast, and it was the first time I didn't feel crazy because I was in the room when Janelle was born. I held Janelle first before my sister. There you and go. <laughs> I felt an instant connection with Janelle that. Someday, somehow, I knew that she was going to be in my life permanently and not just as a niece. And when I heard you talk about it, it was the first time I was like, I don't feel crazy or wrong for feeling the way that I felt then because somebody else felt that way. Oh, you're not crazy at all. I mean, <laughs> when, I, when I held that baby in my arms, I just, I knew, you know, I knew that somehow or another, this little boy was going to be connected to us forever, you know, that he was going to be etched in our hearts forever in time, you know, and and luckily the court's seen it that way too. And 
you know, he is, and we don't have to worry about that anymore. It took, it took a lot of years for Janelle to get to that point, but we finally got there. And, but it was just nice to know that I was not the only one in the world that ever had that experience. Cause for a long time, I felt guilty for feeling that way. You do. Like don't I, you? Right. And then you have like, well, I don't know your experience, but my experience with social workers and Janelle was you're trying to steal her. No, that's not the case at all. Right. No, we, we've been there, you know, and, and that was, you know, we, we've been through that too with Turtle, you know, the, his bio mom was like, you know, they, she just wants my baby and she don't want me to have him. And yeah. you know, we had court orders. She wasn't allowed to talk to us. And so, I mean, it, it was really a crazy process. Yeah. You know, but so worthwhile in the end. <laughs> so worth going through all the, the sleepless nights and the turmoil and the tears and, you know, the just all the craziness because you do feel kind of crazy. Yes. And it mentally messed with me because when she would be with, they would place her with me and then they would say, okay, well, mom did just enough to get her back. So then mom would get her back. And then I know the situation hasn't changed. You know, she would do just enough to fool the social workers, but we knew the situation didn't change. So then the kids would go back and I would be left in this like chaotic circle of what's going on with them. Are they safe? Are they, and she wouldn't have contact with me. She would go away for a while and then she'd reappear months later, you know, looking for something, but it would cause, it caused me to lose a lot in my life relationships. And I didn't know how to handle that mentally. I was a pretty hot mess when they would leave. <laughs> I, I can only imagine, you know, because I mean, I know what it's like when placements leave it, you know, it, it, it kills you, you know, it, it breaks your heart. You right. know, even, you know, even if they're going back to what you think is a good situation, you know, you still, you bond with those children They're you know, while they're here, they're your children. And just because they're leaving doesn't mean that they're not still your children. You think about them and you pray for them, you right. know, just, you hope through your heart that, you know, that everything's going okay for them. And I can only imagine what that was like going back and forth. And of course, she's going to be mad at you guys because you've had the kids. So she's not going to oh, not yeah. <laughs> reach out to you. She's going to keep them from you. And I can only imagine. Oh, yeah. But she would, did. she'd always come back around, though, right around the time she needed money. So then she'd dangle the kids like, oh, they want to see you. But I also need $60. <laughs> so it was like, why don't you rent my kids for me? <laughs> right. And you know what? We, we did that, right? We do it just to know that the kids were safe. That, Absolutely. That for a weekend, they wouldn't have chaos. Right. They could sleep soundly. They'd, they'd have, and while they were with us, we packed those two, four, six days full of experiences. We, it, we filled days full of months worth of, of experiences that a normal family would have because we didn't know when the next time was or if there was going to be a next time. So for me, newcomer, right? Mm -hmm. New guy on the scene. One, I had to establish a relationship. Two, I had to earn that trust, which is tough when, you know, they faced a ton of abuse at the hands of their, their stepdad, other men in their lives. Like I had to sort of reset all of that. And I know you, you spoke a little bit about that with, with turtle, Jason, but it was, it, it was my job. Right. And, you know, through all the, one of the things 
that helped us bond was through all of those experiences, right? We're out there seeing me interact with Courtney, who had always been a constant in their life, but sort of resetting what a man, how a man treats a woman, how a man disagrees with a woman, shoot, how a man fights with a woman and how we come back together. And then how a man treats kids, how a man treats other people on the street, like just sort of trying desperately in that short, those short little blips of time where they were with us on sort of how to do that and how in Elijah's case, how he should sort of model his behavior. And in Janelle's case, what she should be able to accept and expect from, from a guy. You know, that's one of the things that I've learned is what we do as dads is we train our young men. We train our young men to behave the way that we're behaving good or bad. We train our young women what to look for in a man. Mm-hmm. Yep, very much. And that was my that was my responsibility. That's from sort of day one when, you know, after Courtney thought I was valuable enough or mm-hmm. was going to be around long enough to, to introduce to the kids. Once that, that was my job from from sort of day one, even before we were engaged, before we were married was, hey, I, I'm the good role model for male behavior and took it really seriously. You know, Tom, I got to ask you because I'm involved with a group of dads and one of the, you know, we, we dig into a lot of this stuff, you know, and, and most of the guys I know that are doing a great job of being dads are either that way because they had a great dad who taught them how to be or because they grew up saying, I will never do what my dad did to me. You know, did you have a good male role model in your life? When I was young, my dad was awesome, right? My dad was everything. Uh, by the time I became a teenager, my relationship with my parents was pretty bad. And, you know, not that our home was a broken home, but there was, there was some violence there. I moved out when I was 16 and pretty much lived on friends' couches, abandoned buildings, got myself through high school. And the second I graduated high school, I moved from New Jersey to Montana. I just wanted to get the heck out. I Never went to visit. Never went to visit the school. I just wanted anything that had topographically, uh, you know, culturally. I wanted to get as far away from it as I could. Um, I've since come back with my dad, and we have a relationship with him now. He's definitely grandpa to our kids. Um, there's some strain still there, without question. But sure. But I I learned a lot of what to do. And a lot of what not to do. It's sort of a, it's a mixed bag, right? I, You're I think, a neutral guy. Usually people don't, don't learn how to do that piece. There are family that I haven't been able to forgive for some of the stuff that uh, they put me through when I was a kid. I think my father made an effort. And certainly as the kids were coming into our lives or my life, really, I mean, they've always been in your life. Yeah. Um, as they were coming into my life and our life as a family, he did put in an effort where some of my family didn't. And, and in fact, some of my family made it, made a big deal about they're not, they're not blood. They're not, they're not your blood. Your blood is more important. And those people aren't in our lives anymore. I understand that. (laughs) That can be really, really frustrating too. It can be heartbreaking too. When, when your family just don't get what you're driven to or what your passion is and they don't accept an extension of you. 
I'd say 90% of my, of our disagreements between Courtney and I are because of that, because of external factors, family, Mm -hmm. family that's creating that kind of drama by not accepting. And Courtney, rightfully so with what you, what you grew up with, there's some, you've got some acceptance issues. You've got some issues around that familial. I know you've always wanted a family. Right. And I think when you thought you were buying in on this guy, you were getting a family. And it turns out. Eh. But I did get a family. I you got did. you and the kids. I got the I got a different family. I always wanted like a mom and a dad who was going to be there for me. But what I've learned is I'm going to be there for myself and I'll be mom. And he's going to be there and he's dad for the kids. I just learned to accept a new family. It just, you know, there's. I am very defensive of the words bio and blood and you, those are not, you could curse me off till the cows come home, but you start using words like bio and blood. Then I, I get worked up. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, we don't, I don't, I grew up and I, I literally was adopted by a family with six other brothers and sisters. I had zero blood with any of them. So that never meant anything to me bio never meant anything like uh, my friends mostly were my family and so when you start throwing those words around you're going to find yourself on the outside because in this circle we accept everybody it doesn't matter if our blood is the same or our biological whatever is the same but yeah I mean I will (laughs) say one thing Tom is a much different father he's I find him to be it's going to sound weird, but now I'm the, nervous. The dad I always wish I had, Aww. like he's that to our kids. So I feel lucky and I wish the people around him sometimes saw that in him, but he's pretty good at not letting those people affect him. I, I am. When I was a kid, when I was finally getting away from all of it, I decided that the people who had caused me all my pain no longer deserve to have that power over me. Absolutely. So, so in removing that power from them, it doesn't affect me. Now, as an older as an older guy, it affects my wife, it affects my kids. Yeah, then it affects me, but I we we try pretty hard to firewall the worst of that so that those things that that when they do when those wires do cross and they spark, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt the people who are the most vulnerable to it. I can take it. I've got pretty damn thick skin. I cannot. (laughs) (laughs) I I would say that's pretty well us too. I mean, there's a lot of similarities here. It's, it's really nice to, to meet people that are kind of kindred spirits with us. It it doesn't happen often. I, I Courtney, I think you're right. Bio, adopted, foster, all those markers have a very important place. It's in the doctor's office. Yes. No, if the if this is a genetic condition that you know that is in your family. Outside of that, I don't, I don't know that it's ever mattered to us. I mean, okay, our oldest daughter. This is where we get into weird relationship math, right? <laughs> <laughs> Amanda's half sister to our mom. Um, she was only a year and a half older than our oldest son, and her their mom was fighting some addiction issues. Um, for a long time. And, and Arissa lived with us for years and years and years. She called me dad. She called Amanda mom. She was just part of our family. And that's just how, how it was. It seemed natural and normal right. to me. I had no other questions. And I worked for a guy at the time 
who, you know, we were talking one day and he said, he's like, well, that's, they're not your blood. Right. But, but you know, they're, I'm like, yeah, I kind of explained it. He goes, he goes, well, that's good. I'm, I like that you say it that way. I like that you put it that way. That, that means something. And I didn't know until after he passed that when he and his wife had divorced, he had stepkids through his wife's previous marriage okay. that he had custody of. And they were the kids who were in the business running it with him. And they called him dad. He called them kids. And there was, there was no distinction. You you wouldn't have known it. Right. And that was so wonderful. I mean, that's how it should be. Yeah. I know I, I, I find myself correcting people if they say, oh, you're adopted kids. I don't have adopted kids. Right. Kids. like Exactly. So or, you know, know we are. get the, are, are they, you know, are they brother and sister? Well, yeah, they've always been brother and sister. You know, I just, I hate that when I'm out because we, we are a mixed family. We look like a mixed family. I'm white as white can be. We have children that are mixed and Jason looks darker and we have a couple children that are white as white can be like me. I mean, it looks like two different families that are stuck together. And I just hate that when someone's like, well, are they sisters and brothers? Well, yeah, they are. They always have been. They always will be that, you know, it doesn't matter adopted or if I birthed or, or whatever, they're they're brother and sister. We're we're a family. We're we're out here in rural rural Pennsylvania, and we've <laughs> had placements that don't look anything like Courtney or I. And you've had experiences where you've taken them into our our little podunk town, <laughs> and you you get the you get the looks, and you get the and, and you've met that with grace and and sometimes and, and, and candor <laughs> for the most part. Sometimes. All right, I, I I always try to meet it gracefully. You know, I, I try not to let it bother me. I, I try not to say the, the mean things that are going through my mind. At the moment. Right. You know, I, I try to laugh it off. But, you know, there's sometimes in my mind, I'm just like, I could just really slap you right now. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, we've had our fair share because, you know, Amanda's, you know, her maiden name was McClanahan. Her, well, her hair is not naturally the color it is today, but it's naturally red. <laughs> you know, she's as Irish as they get, right? And I am what you would call maybe ambiguously brown because <laughs> <laughs> my parents were not quite just like this. And I, I questioned a lot. Like I even asked my parents, you know, from time to, I tried to look for hints or clues and, but I have a younger brother and an older, or a younger brother and younger sister who look very similar to me, you know, granted my younger sister is a lot prettier than I am. And <laughs> I call him ugly because if he ever listens to it, he can yell at me. But you know, our oldest sister of the bunch, she looks a lot more like my parents, but I remember my younger siblings. I remember my mom being pregnant with them. You know, it's just some weird freak of the genetics there. I come out ambiguously brown. So when we go out, you know, our little girl who's mixed, she's a, she's a shade lighter than me. And one of the boys who's, who's, you know, her biological brother is actually a shade darker than me. And then we have Turtle, who's about two shades darker than me. But the rest of them all look like her. So we look like a his and hers family. We really do. We get a lot of, of questions, you know, um, Carl's story that we told on the podcast at one point, Carl was, he was the darkest skinned little guy I've ever met. And people just didn't know what to think when we had him with us because they could justify his, hers. Who the hell is that? You know, right. we just, we didn't fit into the narrative because we're also in a small rural area as well. But we're, for being in rural Missouri, we have a pretty diverse culture around us. For the most part, it's it's gone pretty well. I mean, we we've had a few issues, but nothing too major. So I have to be very thankful for that, you know. But when when I do have like when I had Carl, I had 
plenty of black women, you know, say their piece about why, why I'm a white woman with this black baby. Oh, I'm you sure. Know, they, they were ready and willing to tell me their opinions on that. Um, and, and I'm thankful that I, I was able to meet that with grace because yeah. in my head, I was not so graceful. <laughs> <laughs> You know, in my head, I wanted to say some choice words. You know, I'm not here doing this. Uh, you know, I didn't steal your man. You know, yeah. I'm not stealing all the black brothers and, you know, having their babies yeah. and all that. I mean, you, you get some really crazy, crazy things thrown at you. I'm pretty sure at one point Tom and I were in a store and I was getting really weird looks. And I'm like, thanks, babe, for taking care of me and my baby. Like, just <laughs> If you're going to look and stare, I'm going to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Exactly. If you're going to make me uncomfortable, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get right back. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, when I'm around, we have one distinct advantage, and that's that I have the ability to look at you and, and think hateful thoughts, and you can feel them in your heart, apparently. And so typically, I don't have to deal with it too much because just a quick stare from Big, mean, ugly guy. Makes people, hey. <laughs> That's what they think. I married you. I did. I've leveraged a very similar skill that <laughs> I learned when I was a bouncer, when I was freelancing. And yeah. this is the shortest my beard's been in, a, in in quite some time. But I'm a big tattooed biker looking dude. Like, for the most part, they leave me, when I'm around, they leave me alone, which is good because I'm not nearly as graceful as my better half. <laughs> and my grace is very small. <laughs> I try to be graceful in most situations, but you know, I, I was raised by a cop. My dad was a police officer and I learned a, a lot about intuition when it comes to people. And I make a decision very quickly, whether or not you're a person I can talk with, you know, if we're going to have an issue, Hey, if I, let's just talk to this dude, we'll, we'll just calm this down and, and solve it. Or if you're just a person looking for a fight. Because if you're a person looking for a fight, you know, I, I may not I may not waste the time on the grace with that. But we haven't had too many experiences like that around here. Yeah. Um, no, it's usually when we travel to other places yeah, that we, we have more more issues. We, we've had a couple experiences like that. Um, but I, in the most part, it's, it's been a pretty decent experience. You know, our kids go to school in this rural area. And I'd say the majority is probably mixed kids at this point almost. Yeah. You know, which is really strange for as rural of an area as we are, but it, that's that's really a, a high percentage of the kids that I see at the school. You know, it's way more than I ever would have expected. And they, even our our oldest son, he's let's see, he's twenty one now. Yeah, yeah, he's twenty one. So even when he was back in school, high school, middle school, their friend group was really diverse, and they had the ability to get along. So I, it gives me hope that our children's generation will. I don't know that you'll ever be able to break racism that you'll be able to fully get rid of it. But I think you'll be able to, I think we'll, we'll be able to hopefully live to see racism become the sort of thing that is fully looked down on. That's fully just kind of marginalized. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's something that we have to look forward to because our kids generation just seems to have more sense in their head than, you know, our generation did. And, and the generation before that. I hope so. <laughs> I think we all do. <laughs> We're not doing our job. I wish our chi- our children's school was more diverse, but it's just not there. I mean, our daughter dealt with some pretty gnarly things last year, being uh, blind, and she's half Puerto Rican. So it's not like it just once they find out, it's just kind of like your target. She, I think she gets it. I mean, I think she's plugged into it. She's certain we've certainly been open about sort of 
here's here's how you can how you should live your life but i think she's she sought out a more diverse peer group so i and i think that's part of the way she's managed fitting in in uh in a in a rural area that looks a lot like me frankly you know what i mean <laughs> she uh she she sought out kids from all sort of spectrums but she surrounded herself with kids who have been marginalized. And I think going through care at, at the age that our kids did, they've, they're keenly aware of who they are, sort of where they fit. And, you know, our kids are the, are the kids that volunteer to help out the special needs kids. There's a group where we live called Greater Slaters, and both of them are, are involved in it. And it's sort of the kind of leadership it's like a leadership, but a student government, but without any of the government stuff, they help the kids out for the the special Olympics and they, they sponsor a kid. And when they go off to do the competitions and stuff, they stand out with the posters and cheer for them and help, help the kids on and off the elevator at school and stuff, stuff like that. I think, I think they, they're aware of some of the challenges they faced and thankfully, mm-hmm. you know, you've always been in their life they're incredibly grateful for where they are. And, and I think it's, it's, it's special having, having kids who can remember some of the struggle, but at the same time, haven't been as damaged as other kids who have been through it because they always had Courtney in their life, right? Courtney was almost, I refer to it like Courtney was their lighthouse, right? No matter how dark the times that they were in were, they always knew that Courtney was out there fighting for them and sort of no matter how far and how long that time elapsed, there was no gap in the love and there was no gap and they're keenly aware of it. There was no gap where Courtney wasn't doing everything she could for them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's helped them. It's helped them be aware that it's helped them avoid some of the damage that we see in other kids who are in care certainly where there's a gap in that sort of familial unit, which is where foster parenting, you know, where we plug in, right? We're supposed to help be that, but the group we work with has kids on campus and there is a gap there. Absolutely. I know I just, I just swung wildly from we were over here, now we're over here. <laughs> That's all good. It's all right. <laughs> the swings aren't always bad. No. <laughs> Because, you know, I, I think that's that's partly our job is to is to look at these kids because and I use this analogy a lot because I think it's so powerful. The truth is, is that we're, we're all headed somewhere, right? We have a destination. It's it's a box and we're all going to head there. And once the once the headstones set in place, it's kind of like a boat It goes across the water. It's going to leave a wake behind it. You don't get to choose whether or not it leaves a wake. You do get to choose what that wake looks like. And you're going to choose a legacy that's left when that headstone is set. What is that head? What, what's that legacy going to be for you? What's that legacy going to be? How, how are you going to change your world? Because I'll be honest with you, the destination doesn't really matter a whole hell of a lot. We're all going to end up in the same place, a little bit different plot of ground, but basically the same place. So how are you going to going to change the world long after you're gone? And one of the things that has bothered me is I. A lot of the people that I've worked with, friends that I've had over the years, they live their life Monday through Friday, working 40 hours a week or, you know, 60 hours a week or 70 or 80 if they can. 
all the chase that Friday or Friday night, Saturday, Sunday afternoon, so they can sit down and watch football, drink beer, mm-hmm. and then complain about their wives Monday through Friday again, their kids, and how horrible their life is. And that seems to be kind of the goal. And I don't understand that. Yeah. Like that, that's the cycle they, they choose to put themselves in. And, right. and we, we start doing this. And I went, this is, this is something that has meaning. That's our, that's our struggle. Like we don't, we can't connect with people because we don't connect on that level. We don't yeah. do the going to the bar and the, you know, complaining about her. I am sad when my kids go back from break from school. Like I love being around my family and my kids. I can't connect with other women around here because they don't feel that way. They want to be away from their kids, away from their husband. They want to, they don't have it's they don't have a sense of purpose and I, I it's hard for me to connect with someone who just like lives a I hate to say it, but like this cookie cutter I'm supposed to complain about my family I'm supposed to complain about my husband I just I just don't get that at all you don't ever complain about me not to <laughs> your face <laughs> at least he's honest <laughs> Well, no, I I do totally understand what you're saying. It is very hard to connect with other women. They don't understand. A lot of women don't understand it, you know, and they'll see, you know, they'll see me after a placement goes home and they'll see me being erect. They'll see me crying. They'll see me grieving. They'll see my loss and they'll say, well, why do you do that? Don't do it. Just, you shouldn't do it. If it makes you feel that way, don't do it. And I'm like, no, that that's no, that's not an option for me. You're completely missing the point. Yeah, I mean they've they've totally lost it. They don't understand it. They don't get it. Um, but yeah, they just don't get it. And you know, when I'm talking to the women that I work with, and they're complaining about their husbands, and they don't do this, and they don't do that, and I'm like, oh my goodness. I mean, I just that's not the way I live. Yeah. And you know, I I don't want to portray. I wouldn't want to portray something like that. You know, right. and I've got women that look at me when I when I'm funny, and, and you know, when I tell them I've been with my husband for 20 years, you know, I'm 40 years old, and I've been with my husband for half of my life, and they're like, "Well, how do you? Oh my gosh, how would you do?" I, you know, and I'm like, I just I don't get it. Yeah, <laughs> it's very 20 years. I've been with him for 42 years. It's horrible. <laughs> I manage. <laughs> I I just don't like. I don't. I don't know. I just feel like the sense of family these days is really lessened. I don't think people get it. So when it's like they're a quote unquote made family, they don't get it. They're not going to have an easy time understanding why people take in other people's children. I've had a very, even other foster parents I thought I was connecting with. And then it would be, they want to complain about their foster kids all the time. And I'm like, I'm not the person for that. Right. Kids don't get into care because of their behavior. 99.999%. It's the behavior of the parents. Exactly. So when you put down their behaviors, you're putting them down. And I don't, I just don't buy into all that. No, because we're supposed to, we're here to help. You know, right. We're supposed to be that support. And right. if they're just putting them down, they're not doing anything to build them up. And that's our purpose. You know, is to build these children up so that they can see that they are worth something and that they can go out and they can live a life of meaning and it doesn't have to matter where you came from. 
you know, right, you can exactly. always, you can always be something else. And the thing is, it always will matter where you came from to some extent. But if you can matter, if you can make where you, who you are today, be the thing that matters the most, that's what you're trying to build. Because you, you can't get rid of their past. You know, that's one of the things. I don't know if you guys saw there was a, a Facebook post making the rounds about a kid eating ramen noodles, some uncooked yes. ramen noodles. Okay. Um, we actually interviewed that's Auburn Dudley. We interviewed her a couple weeks ago. And then the, the lady who had the blog where that was posted, that's Caroline Bailey. And we talked with her as well. And they're both huge advocates of understanding trauma-informed parenting because those, those pieces of trauma don't go away. I don't care how much you love your kid. I don't yep. care how much you know you love this kid, you, what you do for them, you do not have the power to take the trauma out of their brain. It actually physically rewires parts of their brain. Right. And what you can do is to play to provide a place for that to begin to heal. But that's all you can do. Right. You can't you can't take that away. And that's important to remember because I'm not trying to erase their past. But at the same time, I am trying to build a better man or woman and make leave the world a better place. And in the process, I have to realize you're going to do some horrible, horribly stupid stuff, right? I mean, teenagers in general, we all did horribly stupid stuff. But, you know, these kids, <laughs> as Tom raises his hand, <laughs> but, you know, these kids, a lot of them have a lot of impulse control. And that, that causes a lot of other issues. And when being able to see those impulse control problems and know that those impulse control problems are not necessarily just a product of their bad decisions. It has something to do with the fact that you can look on an MRI and see that the brain has been changed by the trauma mm-hmm. and just understand that. Love them through it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't just ignore it because, hey, you know what? At the end of the day, you're going to be 30 years old someday and you need to be a good human. You're going to be on your own out there, like raising your own family, wife and kids, maybe that kind of thing. You need to become a productive member of society, we're going to work with you on getting you to the best human being you can be. But I'm not going to blame you for the trauma you've been through. And I mean, that's, I mean, you're, you're in your late thirties. I you you can still, you can speak to that. Every, every, it's a battle every day to get through the trauma that I went through every day, because I, I didn't just have the trauma of being removed from my home and being adopted. I got placed in an adopt back when I got adopted. If you had a place on the floor, you could adopt someone. And I went through severe trauma in my adoptive home, like severe. And I'm almost 39 years old. And it is a daily battle with my own trauma that I went through years and years and years ago. So I'm dealing with my trauma. And then I'm also dealing with our children's trauma because they went through similar situations that I went through myself. So I only re- I relive mine, but I also relive theirs, and then I'm reliving them together. So I get it. And trauma has an effect on your body physically, right? So I think it's taken a toll on me physically because I'm 30, almost 39, and the stuff that I'm going through probably shouldn't be happening to a 39-year-old who, for the most part, takes good care of herself. A lot of it's unexplained, but I went through some severe trauma as a teenager that never really got dealt with until I was older, but I get it. Like you, some of my behaviors towards my own husband are, you know, effects from what I went through there. Are, I suffer severely from PTSD 
You know, and people say, oh, PTSD is only for people in the military. That is not true at all. No. Our children, yeah. Our children have been diagnosed with it. I was diagnosed with it. It's, it's a real thing. People have a hard time. You know, when we adopted Janelle and Elijah, people be, oh, but their life is so much better now. Is it though? Because they still have to carry around the stuff that the adults that were supposed to be their parents did to them. So it's not their, their living environment and that, yes, they have two parents who adore them beyond anything. They still have to carry, they just expected Janelle and Elijah to be like fixed and better and a signed piece of paper was going to do that. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They still carry around the same bag of trauma. You're just not filling it up anymore. It's not getting any heavier, but, but it's there. Well, what do you, how do you think, how do you think the way that you have learned to cope with your own trauma and past has helped you with your kids? Um, I've definitely, well, I'm very, first, I'm very honest with my children. I think being honest with them about my situation growing up and the trauma that I went through makes their trauma, they don't feel so like they have a mark against them. They're not alone. Yeah. Janelle, Janelle, Janelle and I went through similar stuff, but Janelle went through it at a much younger age than I did. And as she's becoming a teenager now, almost 15, my, my fear is, is that she's going to start to realize the things that had happened to her. It's going to become more to the surface. She's going to understand it. So I made a choice to be honest about my situation and the way that I coped with some of the stuff, you know, I got really into music. I threw myself into hobbies and learning hobbies, new hobbies, reading. And Janelle's picked up the music thing for the most part to, like, deal with some of her depression stuff. She doesn't have a, diagnos- a diagnosis of depression, but we can see it from time to time that it's, un- it's, it's lying underneath and we don't really want to push her into therapy till she comes to us. We've made it very clear when you're ready, you can come to us with anything. So I think honesty in our household about everything that they've been through, I've been through, Tom's been through, has really made it an easier environment for them to come to us. You know, pretending your life was great when you're a child doesn't do your child whose life wasn't great any good so some people say I tell them too much and I tell them I don't think I've told them enough because I want them to feel safe and open to come you know if we don't tell them the little things they're not going to tell us the bigger things if I don't tell them my stuff why would they tell them why would they tell me theirs you know my 19 year old and I were just having a conversation a little bit ago about kind of that piece of, of how those relationships are built with kids. And when they're little, yeah, you control little kids for the most part. You go, Hey, no, turn that way. Go over here. Do do that. Sit up there, get down there, clean up that mess. Yeah, that's what you do with two year olds, right? The, there's not a whole lot more than that that they can really handle. But as they grow older, you, you build those connections. And right. it sounds like that honesty is part of what builds that bridge of connection there, because I'm going to tell you, we've got experience with older kids, right? Like, you're going to lose that all pieces of that control if you haven't already. Maybe you'll just realize it. <laughs> and you, you don't have that control. And you don't really want that control because they're going to be yeah. their own humans. But you want to gain influence. And that connected 
bridge between you and them is what allows you to have that influence into their lives in the hard places. Right. I want Janelle, like when Janelle realizes, because it's going to happen, it's something Tom and I have both accepted, that the trauma that she's experienced as a young girl is going to come to the surface. And it's going to come to the surface hard. And I want her to know that it's not anything to be ashamed of or embarrassed of. And she can come to us and we'll get her the help right away. She knows that. She knows no matter what. She could come to us tomorrow and say, okay, it's time. I need to talk to someone. But we're letting her do that on her terms and not ours. And I think that's the, that's been that's been critical for us is letting letting the kids process on their terms, right? They're not gonna I'm ready, I'm ready to have these conversations today, right? That doesn't help them any. It's when they're ready. And it's oftentimes when your guard is completely down that those conversations can't come up. I spent four days on the Appalachian Trail with my daughter. That was what she wanted to do before she started high school with her her dad. And the conversations we had went from silly and completely goofy to some of the deepest conversations I've ever had with her. And it, it was great being just four days in the middle of the wilderness, just me and her, to have those conversations, to get to those spaces and to have sort of the, the happy moments in between as well. So it wasn't just, this is very serious time and we're going to talk about very serious stuff. It, it ran, ran the gamut and it allowed us to have those, have that sort of meaningful dialogue at the same time, having a lot of fun. Yeah. That's, that's those connected bridges that just, that's what creates a family. I think. I also want the kids to see, you know, for their whole life, honestly, their whole life, it's been social workers, therapists, school counselors, you know, police officers, whatever it is, telling them what they have to do or not yeah. telling them the truth on things. And I don't want to be looked at as one of the people they feel were against them because they do. They feel they have a group of people that were not doing the things that they should have been doing for them. I do not want my children to lump me or Tom into that. So we go the complete opposite and we are completely honest with them about everything. And I think it's helped while I had trust with them. I think as teenagers, you have to regain trust with your kids. They make you earn it. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that sharing some of my past with my children, I'm very open and honest about my past with my children. I, I always have been. I always will be. So I commend you for that because a lot of times it's really hard to share that part of your soul with someone, yeah. especially when it's something that has affected you so deeply. Um, so I, I understand how hard some of those conversations probably could be for you because I know right. how hard they are for me with my children. But I also know that when I have those conversations with my children and I tell them and they know and they see that they're not the only ones, they're not right. the only ones that have been affected by trauma and abuse it gives me a credibility with my children. It's very and, true. And it, it gives me something that, you know, I will always cherish. It, it gives me a connection, a deeper connection with my children. I can connect with them on a deeper level when I say, hey, you know, you're not the only one. Right. You know, and, and, I, and I get it and I understand and I'm here and I want to listen, you know, and you can give it to me and I promise you that I will 
always be respectful of that. Mm-hmm. You know, because our children don't get that when they're in the system. Right. No. They get people that are truly invested in them. You sure. know, it's, they're just a case. They're just a number, well, you know, but yeah. when they come home to us, I want them to know that they have a place. I, I don't know. I, I'll say that a lot of the times, because we know several workers fairly well, we're friends with a couple of workers and, and there's a lot of workers who really do care. They do right. only have so much bandwidth, you know, yeah. they, the state has a caseload on them. That's it's you know, crazy usually, out here. Usually more than, than what is legally allowed. Their caseload is oftentimes twice the legal allowed limit. And so they have a lot to handle. They have a lot on the plate. That's not a matter of whether or not they want to care, whether or not they want to help. It's a matter of they're in more or less constant crisis management. You know, the, the child that they have to deal with today is the one who has the biggest crisis. And that's a shame, you know, and I think that comes back to maybe one of the things I'd love to be able to figure out how to how to create some change around. We need to make enough noise somewhere along the line to get the lawmakers, get the, the state legislators to put enough money behind this to make it a real priority. Because here's the truth. These kids, if we don't take care of them, if we don't help them, if we don't raise them right, the state's just going to take care of them until they turn 18. And then by the time they're 21, they're going to be taking care of them in a the state correctional facility. It's true. Well, we're raising we're raising the next generation that's going to lose their kids into care. Exactly. Right? And where you put your money is your where you your priorities are. Yes, yes. If you want to know a man's priorities, look at his schedule and, and his checkbook. You know, those are the two things that, that we we spend is our time and our money on the things that's important to us. And so, if we don't have a you know have a, some some government programs that help put these put these kids in in the uh, in the forefront of the priority list, then we're just going to see them again as adults. We're going to see them, you know. But two of our kids, I, I talked with one of, one of the local cops I know fairly well. He remembers when their mother was in foster care. Like yeah. it's a second generation thing, at least that I know of. You know, we're, we're going to break that that generational curse. I mean, but, Janelle, Janelle and Elijah are perfect examples of that. Their mom was adopted from the foster care system. Like, and has almost mimicked the behaviors of her mother. Yeah, they're they're second they're their second generation and we're doing what we can to break that and make sure there's not a third. Absolutely. And so when people look at us, you know, when 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 we're we're letting a kid go back somewhere or go to an adoptive home or, or leave us and it hurts, you know, I've got I've got kids tattooed on my body that most people would think, you know, the guy's gotta be a psychopath. Why's he got so many kids tattooed on him, right? <laughs> These kids have made a mark both physically and and metaphysically on on us as a family, and it hurts when you let some of them go. I'm not gonna lie, there's been a couple that didn't really hurt. That was like, ooh, that was a challenge. You know, <laughs> you know ODD is something I don't do well with. I, I don't have have that figured out yet. I, I'm just that's not my skill set. But you know, these kids who 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 are coming into care and that that we bring into our families and yeah, it hurts when they, when you let most of them go. When you see them go back home, even when they go back to a good placement, you know, we we had one sibling group that we thought we were going to end up with us forever, but their dad got his stuff together. He got his life back on track. He got a job. He got promoted. He moved out of his mom's place. Got away from the, the troubles and the drama that was there, you know, and, and got all that taken care of. 
And once he got all that taken care of, his life got to the place where he could take care of his kids. And they're back with him now. You know, and we are both thankful and saddened by that, right? Like, I'm so glad those kids got to experience that because that's what they need. But for us, it was a challenge to let them go. And why do we do it? Well, that's why. Yep. Yep. That's why, because that's what they need. Those those kids, you know, if they're old enough to see it happen, also get to see a tale of redemption, right? They get to see their parent care enough to make those serious life changes. And those are hard, right? That breaking the cycle of addiction, crime, poverty, any of those big capital letter issues that, that can plague a person, breaking that cycle is tough. And if you're able to do it and able to sustain that for your kids and they're old enough to recognize that and aware enough, they will. And, and they will value that. Absolutely. And not only will they, will they see it, they'll realize it, but they'll come back later. And, yeah. and you'll, you'll have a conversation about that later, but you know, they, but they see it, they internalize it and you make a difference in a life. And that difference comes back tenfold down the line that change. You know, that that's a huge change in their life. It shifts everything. And that's why it's worth doing. That's why it's worth the pain of letting them go. That's why, you know, we do the things that make people say, what are you guys crazy? The, you know, you know, or, or, you know, I love the phrase. I could never do that. I just get too attached. I wouldn't give them back. Oh, yes. Yes, you would. Number one, you've got, <laughs> guns will show up at your house to help you. <laughs> They'll make you know? One way or another, it's going to happen. <laughs> and, and it's kind of, there's almost a subliminal messaging there that, oh, I could never do that. I'm too good of a person to be able to let them go. I don't know how you could possibly do that. There must be something wrong with you. Right. <laughs> the truth is, man, it hurts. But and it's hard. But have you ever done anything in your life that wasn't hard that was worth doing? It's true. Nope. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that's what it's all about. Every bit of growth I've ever had came from pain. It's true. That's very, very true. In, in fact, my wife has constant growth tattooed across her wrists. I do. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, because that's, that's the truth. I mean, we are either growing or dying, one of the two. You don't get to stand still. You know, go, go try and plant a vegetable garden and you'll learn real quick. Plants do not stay still. There's no such thing as stasis. You're either growing or dying, one of the two. Which one are you doing today? And if, I, if, it, if it's my vegetable garden, unfortunately, it's probably dying. I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm feeding the raccoons is what I'm doing with the garden. <laughs> but, I mean, honestly, you're, you're, you're training the next generation. They get to see how you live. You get to make that difference in their life. And, and that's the incredible thing to me is when I was a young man, I watched my dad take a couple young guys that were, you know, one of them was, was a family friend. And uh, the other guy, he met professionally as a police officer when his mom called the cops and said, come deal with this kid before I abuse him. Because he was, I'm going to be honest, he's my buddy. He was a shithead. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I mean, he was, he was at that age that was, yeah, and he, he had his own, his own set of troubles and he didn't know how to, how to manage that appropriately. But my dad stepped in and mentored those two guys off and on through several years. And today... If you Google one of them, you'll find his like his first and last name will give you a picture of him. He turned into somebody in his world. My other buddy, you know, he went on and eventually became a police officer for a few years, decided that wasn't the 
work that he wanted to do for the rest of his life. And he's a carpenter now. He's married. Both of them are married, have kids, raise families, do all the right things. But the thing that I know is that the difference that happened is one person, one person took an interest. Yeah. And that was the difference that took them from the a real question mark as to where they were going to end up to productive, good members of society. And that's all. And I saw that. I saw my dad do that with, with a, a couple of different boys. And I went, wow. And we're still friends today. You know, me and both of those guys, you know, and I look at it and go, okay, they were teenage boys. I don't know how my dad did that. Cause number one, I didn't like teenagers when I was a teenager. I don't know about you guys, but <laughs> that was not my favorite time to be or to experience. Anyways, it was always a challenge, but a four year old, my God, Give me some matchbox cars. We'll get the play mat out and we're going to have a blast, right? That's where I can spend a lot of my energy and leave a lot of that legacy. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like that's what you guys have done with these two kids, especially, you know, because we haven't even really talked about any of the other placements you've had over the years. Yeah, we, uh, we've, we've, it's very similar though, right? So for me, when I was growing up, what I think really saved me was I, I found an external family in my friends and we were bonded by the things we did. We were bonded by skateboarding. We were bonded by going to punk rock shows. And there's a community that I found there. So now as an adult, one of the things we do when we do have placements is they get to ride a skateboard for the first time. I take them out on the boat fishing. We expose them to different kinds of music. Like we, it's some of that. It's we take them hiking. We, we get them out in the outdoors. We give them the opportunities to plug in to maybe they find their outlet. Maybe they find that thing that works for them that becomes the thing that helps save them. That thing that is transcendent for who they are that gets them through the, t the dark times. You know, I can't tell you how many times I sat on my skateboard bawling my eyes out as a kid and then got up and rode full speed into a curb <laughs> who knows but um that was that was for me and some of what we do is you know you expose them to music and you sing with them and you know i get them out outside and doing that kind of stuff so that they do have those experiences because we know in a lot of these families that the kids come from they don't they aren't given those kind of foundational experiences they don't have the opportunities to experience those things. They have no clue that that even exists out there. Yeah. It, <clears throat> that <laughs> You hit it right on the head. I mean, you're handing them all these different opportunities to experience things mm -hmm. and live life the way that people need to live life and, and give them outlets to grow. Um, you know, my, uh, me personally, one of, one of my pastimes, I am a uh, part-time and completely untrained psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I said, I love to sit and have conversations and I'll tell you with, with some of my kids that have blown me away. I sat down here, it's probably six or months or so ago, three to six months ago. I sat down with turtle who at the time I think was still five. He might've just turned six. He was right in that age range. And we were, we were eating dinner one night and he asked a question at the dinner table about God or heaven or hell or something like that. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not here to, to proselytize, I don't know what anybody else's religious belief is, but, you know, I think that there's something there and it's worth a discussion. And when a kid asks a question, I'm not just going to turn them down. And so we sat and had a discussion and Amanda, who, <laughs> who was so helpful in those moments, says, 
that's your conversation. And she leaves. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I was out. But I, you in. <laughs> but I sat with a five-year-old and we had the deepest conversation I've ever had with a five-year-old. He sat and talked and, and we discussed things and, and obviously on a five-year-old level as best we could. But just to be able to have those deep connections and let a kid know, hey, this is this is how you actually work through problems. We think about things. We talk about them. And I'm not going to just say that, you know, you know, this church said this or, or these people said that, and this is what you have to believe. Let's sit and talk about it. Let them know that it's okay to, to have an idea. It's okay to think that somebody else is wrong or to know that you don't know. And to, to sit and have those moments of, of reflection and be able to build your own idea around things. Because so much of what these kids get is just what you said earlier. You have a group of people who tell them where to be, what to do, what's, yep. what they have to, you know, all these things are laid out for them. You have to give them some room to express themselves in a way, one way or another. Right. You know, and, and right now, one of, one of our kids we've gotten, um, his is sports. Like we are literally in our second basketball season in a row. <laughs> yeah. we, we have not had an off season in a year yeah. i mean every week is practices and games and making everybody's schedule work but that's but what it's, he does it's where our kids thrive yeah, yeah. you know and i'm i am not going to stifle my children you right. know i want them to grow to be who they want to be you know but i i'm going to try to guide them the right way you know i'm not going to try to you know say it's okay for you to go out and you know start fires everywhere you know that that's not what we're doing we're we're teaching them and guiding them and helping them grow in a healthy manner you know and and teaching them to become the best that they can be yeah so if you ever see the name palmer on the back of an nfl jersey (laughs) if he's not real tall and kind of kind of thin fast as can be yeah but quick as lightning you might actually you might have a connection there (laughs) hey we'll, we'll we'll wait for our signed jersey there you go. <laughs> we will too. <laughs> but you know, the kid, well, he's he's not very very big on the basketball thing. It's he plays because it's a small town. They need every kid they can get in the sport, and it keeps him athletic and it keeps him in good shape. But football is his thing. Like it's his biological father played football for the same team that he plays for now. You know, he's he played just finished up his eighth grade season this year, and the coaches this year are we're already talking to him in the middle of his eighth grade season about when he becomes a freshman playing varsity on the high school team. He's got skill. He's got speed. And, but that's, that's his thing. I never played a sport in high school. I played a little baseball when I was like sixth grade or something, I think, but the sports was never my big thing. That's his thing. So that's what we do. I was, I was, I was terrible until I found, until I stepped on a, a surfboard. Once I, once I started going that way, it all made sense, but there's great pictures of me playing baseball as a kid, as the catcher, where I've got the glove up and the ball's going through my legs and <laughs> me picking grass as a soccer goalie. I I didn't have the focus or attention for any of it until I got on a board, and then it, it sort of all made sense. And that's the thing. Everybody's everybody's wired for something, and that's what we're trying to, to do is expose them to enough things so where they can find that one thing that sets their soul on fire, that makes them go, this is this is a piece of me. I like this. This makes me feel successful and happy. And, you know, that, that's, that's a huge piece of it is for them to find their, their place in the world. And it's not going to be my place, most likely. You know, most of my kids are not going to wind up just like me. They'll have some thought patterns that look a lot like mine. I'm, I'll train those into them, I'm sure. But, <laughs> but, but that's, not, that's not how it works. You know, you have to meet them where they're at. 
and our kids have have really have really thrived in some of that. You know, I've got a you know what, what football player and a basketball um, and one a cheerleader soccer. soccer. <laughs> um, yeah, the two little ones played soccer. So yeah, one but who's, who draws and music and yep. you know all of our kids are different and and it's great. You know, it's wonderful to see them thrive in the place that they want to be. But and those are the things too. And I'm not certain how I haven't haven't seen enough science to know if they've figured this out yet. But it seems like once they find their place, that's kind of what helps to heal some of that some of that trauma. It's true. They find that place that they belong, and and that's our job as as parents. You know, whether it's your 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 biological kids or it's just foster kids hanging out in your house for a while or or however it works, part of our job is to find the things that sets them on fire and let them figure out how to let their soul burn and just become the greatest version of them that, that you know, they were made to be. Because once they have that, the trauma doesn't go away, but it sure pales in comparison to what they can become. You just, you just made me think we had this placement of a little boy. You just made me think that I hope he took he got really big into so- a soccer ball. Soccer ball, right? Oh my gosh, he was the <laughs> cutest little dude. But he he got we he showed up and you know and you guys probably know when they when they come to you they don't have much right. Oh yeah. And the 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 one caseworker from the children's home Veston that we worked with showed up with a soccer ball for him. Soccer ball. And his my soccer ball and. It was his whole, his whole body lit up and that soccer ball was like everything to him. And now I'm thinking about him hoping, cause he's probably, he's a few years older now, hoping that when he went back and I, I let the bio family know that like, he really got into the soccer ball, you know, now I'm hoping that he really got into soccer cause we can't see a soccer ball now without going soccer ball. <laughs> No, no, we, I mean, all of it, and I'm sure you guys know this, you know, you've been through it. Each placement leaves a mark on you. And you know, literally in Jason's case. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I have a tattoo for several of our children that are, yeah. that are no longer our children, but they leave a mark on your soul and you remember them and, and you think of them and, and you just pray that they're doing well somewhere. Yep. You know, and you you hope that your bit of influence for as little as it is or as long as it is, you hope that it's enough to help make that change. We we had another little boy for what, like three weeks? This was the little boy we had to take from another foster family. And he he just had the curliest hair. And I, I think about him all the time and just hope that he's because I would have adopted him in a half of a second. <laughs> he was just the sweetest little boy he wanted he he just wanted to be part of the family and you could tell we took him to his first like minor league baseball game and he was just so into it and he he was just like the most awesome I think about him all the time all the time I mean we we've had a lot of kids through our home and like you said some you're like it's a little easier than others for them to you know move on but you know this little boy he just and one of one of our shorter placements too, you yeah. know. But in three weeks, that kid etched himself into our hearts for sure. Yeah. One of one of my favorite photos uh, of uh, is Courtney is him holding a fishing net with Courtney in it, 
and her going like this. <laughs> and, and I mean, that captured that kid's spirit. I took him down a hill on my skateboard between my legs and just beaming, just, just completely right. beaming. I'm, he could have lit up darkness. It was, it was, in, it was incredible. You know, so many people tell me, you know, when I'm out doing my thing, just grocery shopping or wherever, you know, and someone finds out who we are and what we do. And, you know, so many people tell me, oh, those kids, they're so lucky to have you. And and that really just, it really, it really bothers me when I hear that. But I always come back with, you know, my kids have given me more than I can ever give them. Yep. I'm the lucky one. I always turn it around and say, we're the blessed ones. We're the lucky ones, right? Kids shouldn't, they're lucky because they have parents who love them and care. That's what they're supposed to have. Right. Like I don't see it as a, they're getting something extra. These kids have suffered through so much trauma and so much pain. They're not the lucky ones. We're lucky that we get to, to, to be there and to grow with them. Yeah, I look at it this way. Um, when when people say that, what what you're saying is, I'm kind of their consolation prize, and that's not always awesome. No, right. no, exactly. they, they didn't want a consolation prize. They wanted a mom and dad to take care of them. And and, yeah. and I've had those moments where I've sat on the front porch and held a little girl who said, "All I really want is, I wish my mommy and daddy would would stop doing drugs and take care of me, like they're supposed to." And at six, she knew that. Yeah. Like she had a clear cut understanding of what was going on there. And she was thankful for, you know, for being, you know, for staying with us and us taking care of her and all that good stuff. But the thing was, is that, that she understood that something had been taken from her and whether they can articulate it or not. I think most of these kids all understand that very clearly. And that's all they really want. What they really want is for somebody to take care of them. So let, let me ask you this question. Um, have you guys ever had any placements that ended up going back home that you went, wow, they got their stuff together. You know, they took care of stuff and they, they actually turned their life around. Have you seen any real, like, I, I don't know that we've had, I don't know that we've had like that redemption story. We no. certainly, we've, we've had a couple across the spectrum where they've gone home and we've gone that's not right. That that's not the right choice. That's a that's somebody's failing these kids. We've seen that. We've seen kids also sort of on the other hand where we're like, why are these kids in care? Right. You know, the, the the these parents sure hit a rough patch, but I don't know that that made sense for removal. Right. You know, and to put the kids through the trauma of 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 going into the of a loss. Yeah. You know, every time you move a kid from a home, remove a kid from a home, they're taking another loss with them. And sometimes those losses are not repairable. And so uh, we've definitely had a kid or two in our home or like they couldn't have done in-home services with these with this family. But I don't know that we've actually had like a redemption story. We've we had a we had an almost redemption story. But then once the kids were back the pressure of the kids this is what we were told. The pressure of the kids caused the mom to relapse. So I think they put the children back into the home too quickly and they're where they could have worked more with the mom. 
prior to the, or maybe given more visitations and slowly introduced them, the kids back to the family. But we thought that she was going to be on a better path, but then it turned out that she blames her kids for her pressures. So, I mean, yeah, sadly we haven't had that like redemption. Like I, I try to work with some of the bio families too. Like I don't just take the kids and say, okay, well, good luck. Like I, I really do try to do the reach out with the parents. I write diaries of what the kids are doing. So when they go for visitations, they're in the loop, you know? And, and I always feel like if you're seeing your kids happy and successful, most parents would want to get their stuff together and like, well, I want that with my kids. You know, I want my kids and I want to have those things with my kids. I don't want to miss those moments, but yeah, sadly we haven't had the full redemption story. Well, I believe the, uh, the, ne- the podcast coming out next week is, uh, I think I d- named it Amy's story. And um, if you guys have an opportunity, that one's going to take a couple of weeks to get through, but she actually has a redemption story. She has one that, that was pretty impressive and, and the problem she found herself in, you know, she got around to coming out and telling the whole story. And if she was trying to make herself look good, she did a terrible job of that because she wasn't trying to hide the truth. She was open, yeah. she was honest, and she told a lot of, but, but I, I think when I hear stories like that, that is the sort of thing that helps convince some of these, some of these bio families that, Hey, there really is a route back. There's a way back. Yeah. It's brave of her to to be able to confront that and to talk about it openly because I think it does it can it can serve as sort of a signpost or a, a map a roadmap back. Absolutely, because so many of these bio families hear the same story all the time. Oh, when the state takes your kids, you never get them back, and it's it kind of t- leads to a, a can't win, don't try methodology. You know, right. that's, hey, I can't I can't do anything. I'm, I'm just it's just all there is. I can't do anything. Just don't even try. And her story really really touched Amanda and I because we were asked to speak at a, um, at a class where it was a foster parent class that was getting ready to finish up their training. And the supervisor knew us and she said, Hey, can you guys come out and talk to this class? And when we got there, um, Amy spoke first. We didn't know Amy was coming and we'd never heard of Amy. And she told her story. And I'm like, you have to come be on here. Cause if you're willing to tell this, <laughs> what everybody needs to hear, you know, because it's easy to look at, at parents, biological parents and be like, well, what are you doing messing with this stuff? Why are you doing that? What's wrong with you? Why would you do that and put your kids at risk? Something's wrong with you and start down that judgmental path. It's really easy. I'm, I'm not going to say we haven't (laughs) been guilty of it from time to time. Everybody has, but you know, to hear her tell her story and talk about the struggles, but then to walk through the struggles and walk the path it took to get back to having her kids. That was the amazing part. Well, I mean, she definitely walked through the fire and she came out on the other side, you know, and she's doing really well, you know, and I, I just think that there's not a whole lot of resources out there to try to put these families back together. Again, that goes back to the, I don't think it's even the caseworkers. That goes back to the state a lot of times and the resources that they have available for the caseworkers to give. Oh yeah. They just, there's not enough money for parenting classes. There's not enough money for this. We don't have the resources for that. Well, what are we doing to repair people? Because I guarantee you the biological parents that have lost their children, they have trauma in their life. There's a reason why they're going through the struggles that they're going through. And if we can help them too and help them repair and build them up, you know, because let's say all my children 
all they ever say is they want their mom and their dad. You know, they want yeah. that. They want that connection. And we just, the resources aren't there and, and people don't know about it and people don't care, you know, but if I can help build somebody up, right. If I can help repair them and make them a little bit better than what they were yesterday that does something for me too. You know, that fills my cup. It fills my soul, you know, and if I can help the parents become better parents for when they do get their children back, you know, it's better for the kids. Yeah. The best thing for the kids is to get their, their biological family back on track and have, you know, the person who birthed them come take care of them. Cause that's, there is an inherent desire for that in, in almost every human I've ever met. Um, Obviously, with certain types of trauma, and maybe not, but there's always a desire to have biological parents who are who are willing to take care of you and do the right thing. That's the best solution, and that's yeah. why I assume you guys are similar there in Pennsylvania, um, here in Missouri. We you know reunification is the first goal, and if you right. don't seem to walk that road, then you know we run concurrent plans with you know termination as well, but that's the best thing for the kids is to be in that situation, the healthiest place. Now, if that doesn't work, you know, we're the healthiest second option, right? That, and so that's, that's where we go. Is, is well, I mean, there's a reason why we've, we've adopted four, you know, it's yeah. right. parents can't always get their stuff together. And sometimes there's things that are so, so bad that, you know, it, it's not a good option for children to go back. You know, there, mm-hmm. there is that too, but there's so many cases that I just see that, you know, the parents just need more help. We had this one little girl. She cried and cried every day, all day long, just for her mom. And she would be on the phone with her mom and she'd be crying and crying and crying. She just wanted her mom, right? So I worked with this mom because I saw the pain in this little girl. And I worked and worked and worked with this mom. And she wound up getting her kids back. I don't know what happened after that, but at least we worked the process with her. You know, I tr- even with Janelle and Elijah's mom, my adopted sister, in the beginning, I did a lot of soul searching and praying to help her, you know, put my feelings aside on how I felt about things, but to truly help her. She just couldn't get there. She right. just could not get to that path to, you know, people always say, how could someone do that to their kids? But you don't really know what they, I know that my adopted sister went through trauma. She'll never admit to it, but I know that she went to it. She had to have, right? She, they say, how could they do this to their kids? But unless you've lived trauma the way that some of us have lived trauma, it's a really hard thing to understand. Broken, broken people aren't always aware of how they're broken and how to fix Right. Like, and, and there's, there's no way that you can, I mean, you, you bought that woman a house, yeah. right? Like there, there's no, there's no magic bean, no magic pill, no degree in a, in a psychologist's office or, or who knows what Right. that's going to fix them if they're not there themselves. It's true. And I had hoped and hoped and hoped for her. I said, it's going to happen. She's, there's going to be that magic moment where that light is going to turn on and she's going to just get rid of the things in her life that weren't helping her children. She was going to make the right decisions, but just never clicked, you know, and some of them do and some of them don't. And you have to take the, the good with the bad when it comes to the bio parents as well, because I definitely went through the ringer with her. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you did. And I mean, that's another loss for you, too. Right. And and while everyone's saying how lucky the kids are, I'm thinking, well, I just, I'm, I lost my younger niece and nephew. They're half siblings. I lost my sister. You know, I don't have that. Like, we can't have a relationship. We have a completely closed adoption. She wants absolutely nothing to do with anyone. And and that's probably better for everyone right now, but it's still a loss. Absolutely you know, it is. I cared for not only her children, but I cared for her too. You know, I whether she believes it or not, I wanted to see her succeed with her children. I don't I wanted to be the fun aunt. I wanted the kids to come to my house and I get to do all the cool fun things and then like you go be responsible and you deal with them and I'll just be the fun aunt. I used to get mad that I couldn't do that. Like I didn't want to take care of her children. I wanted her to have that moment of like, these are my kids and I'm going to do what I have to do no matter what. And then she like, like now I don't even like to be called aunt from anybody because I just feel like that whole title has been like damaged for me. Because right. of all of the, I mean, we went through serious trauma with their parents while we had the kids, like some scary stuff. We had to, our, our lives were threatened, like, and not like, I'm going to kill you, like where there was a plan and it was discussed with the social worker and like, those are scary things. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. It go, it goes even further than that though. You had a gun put to your head. Yeah, like, like that's not that's hypothetical. How far I went to protect them, but still tried to work the process with her. Wow. Yeah. That's. I, I'm not even certain what to say to that. To be quite honest. Yeah. I mean, like, why are you why are you involved in all that? Why you don't need to take that on? I'm like, yeah, I do because there was a little girl born on the 11th of June that I held and looked her straight in her wide eyes the day she was born and told her no matter what I was going to protect her because I knew it wasn't normal what was going to happen I just I saw it and that was it yeah and and, you know if if you've listened to to Turtle's story then you guys know there was plenty of, of stuff going on in kind of in that world and well, you know, I, I don't tell his the whole story there because there's parts of it that get a little bit dicey. Um, but we'll say that, you know, there's been more than one person who's tried to make it clear to the entire family that then I'm going to end up dying at some point by their hand. And I haven't they haven't gotten around to it yet, I guess. So I'm not right. too worried about it now, but I'm not going to lie in the moment. There was there was enough to put a little bit of consternation on my face. You know, sure. I, oh, yeah. I I carried around a few things for a while to to make certain that I had the you know the best possible odds of of walking away, and that's 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 and I'm a big scary guy, right? Right? I can't imagine you know having my wife walk into that and having somebody put a gun to her head. That's my gosh. I mean, that that predates my involvement, thankfully, because I don't know. Again, going back to handling things gracefully, I don't know that I I would. Uh, I know my husband would not handle that gracefully at all. I I, I I wouldn't want him to. I I will say, though, you know, there have been times where I've had to do the math, and I know I am better for my children 
as a fully functioning present father than someplace much less happy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm better as a dad here in the house with the kids than I am as inmate number, you know, five, seven, two, three, nine. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But you know, that that's some of the, the dangers that, that we've seen on the far end of the spectrum because we've, we've had that, those family type placements as well. And man, some families mean ugly and hateful and, and angry. And they're the most dangerous people I think to, to deal with sometimes, you know, honestly, we haven't had any real issues. I'm trying to think here. Oh, it's any, all been with family. Yeah, from, <laughs> nothing from from kids' bio family. It's it's all been stuff that involved our own family. Well, my family <laughs> mainly. It's all good. I, I'll take it. People always say, "Oh, Janelle and Elijah, they weren't in real foster care. They were placed with a no." They they had all the same rules, but then they would say, "Oh, well, you're you know you're just the aunt taking care of them." Oh, but we're way more than that. It's a scary situation to sit down with a social worker and she say, "You should probably go dark for a while. She's looking for you." Like that's that's not normal. Like yeah, that, that that's been the scariest moment. We've had all kind. We've had kids in placement where they're. Their dad has been tried for murder, uh, all kinds of stuff. We've never had a problem. It was the family. The family placement was like the toughest one. And that's what I used to say to my worker from the children's home is these people that think placements from in families are so easy. They have no idea. I mean, there's a couple levels to that because the kids were in traditional foster care too. Right. It's part of the reason we moved to Pennsylvania is they wouldn't do interstate placement. I was so going to say, you guys them. actually, you moved so that you could, could be with the kids, correct? Yeah. They, wow. they, they were, they would, for a while, mom was in New Jersey and they would place the kids with, with Courtney. When she moved to Pennsylvania, she got caught gaming the system in a couple of different states. So bounced states to be, to get around that. When she was in Pennsylvania, she was able to block them reaching out for a kin placement with Courtney. And in that downtime, I came into the picture and we made the choice to move together to Pennsylvania to get engaged and to get recertified in Pennsylvania. So we could take placements. We had our first placement was a teenager. Um, and when she went back we got a phone call for, hey, there's four kids that need care. And we looked at each other and said, can we take four kids? And we can figure it out. Sure. You know, how are we <laughs> going to do? My my questions are always, okay, logistically, how are we going to transport four kids? How are we going to, how, how, how? And so we started ready our house for four kids. And then we got a call later that afternoon. Hey, there are another four kids that need, need care. And. <laughs> They're your nieces and nephews. So we we reconfigured and rejiggered and figured out how we were going to make it all happen. We didn't take all eight. That may have broken us. <laughs> <laughs> although I did tell, although I did tell my worker, if you can't find a placement for them this weekend, we'll take them too. We don't want to leave you, leave these kids lingering. 
you know, if they need a placement, we'll take them. And she's like, are you crazy? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, at that point, we had only had one. (laughs) Jason asks me all the time if I'm crazy when I call him and say, hey, babe, I got this phone call. He's like, I can usually tell if the phone rings between a certain window of time while I'm at work. That uh, uh, we got, they're coming. (laughs) You know, you know, I I just want to step back to something real quick. You know, because we're kind of just sitting here talking, and yeah, because wow, like we don't meet kindred spirits quite like this with so many similarities to our stories very often. But you know, to the people who are listening, I mean, you have to realize what was just said. You guys picked up your home and moved across state lines to be able to take care of kids. Well, specific kids. So just in case, because we get this question, you know, from time to time and it drives me crazy, you know, they must pay you a lot for that, right? Um, It's pretty obvious. (laughs) Yeah. Credit card statements for you. (laughs) Right. Well, and Missouri, where we live, is the, I believe, the lowest, 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 second lowest paid, you know, state in the nation, right? So I don't care if, if you are in the highest paid state in the nation and you are getting a huge reimbursement every month. You like moved across state lines. You you had to like buy and sell houses and stuff. Find jobs and reconfigure an entire life. You know, well, the, the point is is that it's not about obviously not about money. It says a whole lot about who the humans are behind the story. I I appreciate that. And I in in all transparency, I'm blessed that you know, we live in the northeast, so the states aren't that big. Yeah. <laughs> and we we I, in our old house, we could practically see New Jersey, and I'm blessed with a good enough job that supports adoption and support. And I've had managers who have supported our journey through foster care who were completely understanding. And when I get a call and some uh, all hell broke loose and I've got to drop everything and run home, that I've been able to. The other wonderful thing about my job is that it. It has given us the ability to have Courtney be a stay-at-home mom. So Courtney gets to be a full-time child advocate and to be able to speak for these kids when they can't, to do the one-on-one t- work time that she she's done that has changed these kids' lives um, and, and, and thankfully provides a great living for us that the, the subsidy goes to the kids, right? We're, we're not we couldn't we were in a place where we couldn't buy a home because uh, we had lived off of our credit cards because of exactly that right we leaned on it every kid that comes in our house gets full new clothes gets new bedding gets uh, the toys that are appropriate for what their interests are and and we service the kids you know it's meeting the kids where they are we we didn't have one placement that came to us that had anything with them. We legitimately had to take from ground zero up to make sure they had everything. And we don't buy for a temporary stay at our house. We buy in, these are things that are going to go home with them that need to last because we don't know when they get home, if they're going to be able to have those things. But in saying all the wonderful things that with your job and everything, we also did leave our life that we, we had built. We we were down in the sh- yeah. We lived a block from the ocean. Like, 
We left our friends and our family. Like we don't, when we moved here now, even more now, we left any kind of support we really would have had because we lived about two hours away from most of the people that could drop things to help us. So that's a huge ask of our family and our friends to say, hey, we need support in something. Drive two hours to us and drive two hours home. Or we need, you know, we didn't have the family to have for babysitting or, you know, it was a lot. We changed our whole life. I mean, Tom and I weren't even completely, we just got married when we took Janelle and Elijah and their siblings. We were doing date nights in our bedroom of like Thai take, take out food in a movie while the <laughs> little sisters throwing up in a room. So it wasn't even really like a, a date night kind of thing, but we, we absolutely had established ourselves down in the Asbury park area. And we dropped all of that without a second thought. We started looking for a place to live in Easton and, was one of the reasons that I fell so much more in love with Tom because a lot of people say they're willing to do things, but this man backs up everything he says he's going to do. It may not be at my time schedule, (laughs) but he definitely gets there. (laughs) Right on down to the date nights with puke. Yeah. Right. right. (laughs) Been there and done that one. (laughs) We've so been there, you know, when you haven't been on a date night and, eight months and you know there's not a foreseeable night in like the next three four months yeah, right i mean you just you make it work right you know Absolutely. and, and it's, I mean, kids, it's always kids, awesome to so have familiar the with that date night now they'll <laughs> say oh you guys have a date night with food in the movie in your room you <laughs> <laughs> well, we date nights now <laughs> yeah yeah and that that's that's a big piece of it too you know that one of the things you guys are training with that is these kids get to see what a real relationship looks like. You right. Know? And, Actually, and- last night, Janelle just said to us, I'm really glad that I have parents that are really good at communicating. She she can see that that's something because we can. We can bicker with each other, but we always come back to it. I say it's bickering, but, you know, I'm a little bit more than bickering. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> You're staying out of trouble. <laughs> but we can, always, we can always come back to each other in a loving manner, and our kids see that. They see that you can argue with someone, get your opinions out, and then come back together and can still have that unit. And for her as a 14-year-old teenager who, you know, most teenagers are into themselves and want to do their own thing, to Wait, say what? that she can see that her <laughs> can communicate, that we can communicate, it meant a lot to me last night to hear her say that. Yeah, that you know that that's amazing because you know, you look at the the path that most of these kids who come into care are on, and, and where their families are at, and you know having parents who are in crisis, and usually I, I don't know about your area, I'll assume it's probably very similar across the nation. Drugs are a big piece of most of it. You know, mm-hmm. drugs, alcohol, violence. Um, yeah, that, that's that's pretty much like the the constant in a lot of these kids' lives. And for them to, even if they go home, to to see that it's possible to live without that. Yeah. You know that that's such an amazing piece to hand to a kid because when they get old enough, you know, most kids get to the point where they decide 
I want to be just like my dad. I want to be just like my mom. Or I will never be like that man. I will never do what my mom did to me. Those are the two stories you tend to hear. Mm -hmm. And you've handed a a perfect picture to these kids of what that looks like. That, hey, it doesn't have to be this way. Right. You know, we we might come from from difficult places, but that does not get to to define who you are today and who you will be tomorrow. That's that's the beauty of this life is it's every day is a blank sheet of paper. You know, you get to write the ending to your story. And a lot of us, a lot of kids don't see that. You know, when you grow up in poverty, you grow up with drugs around you, you grow up with guns, you grow up with violence, you grow up with all these different things around you. It's really hard to see. Uh, just a normal American suburban, you know, story as anything other than a fairy tale. Suburban. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I was just, I was riding with our, my daughter went to work with me yesterday. She came to help me because I wasn't feeling very well. So she said, mom, I want to go to work with you and I'll, and I'll help you. And I said, okay, that's great. I, I take care of people with special needs. And sometimes she comes and she plays games and paints their nails and things like that. So she came with me and we were on the ride back and we were just talking and she said, you know, mama, it just, it, it really, I don't know. It just, it really kind of worries me, mom, because all of my friends, most of my friends do not have a mom and dad at home. And a lot of my friends don't even have a mom and dad They're They're with their grandparents. And that's like the normal now is to be in a broken home or, or be with your grandparents or, or somebody else. And it's just, it's really sad where we are today where i'm it saddens me that that's the normal you know it's normal for kids to not have a mom and dad in the same home together or they're living with their grandparents or you know one parent is in here and the other parent is states away because they just can't stand to be around each other and it's just it it hurts Uh, and i hate to see that and my daughter notices that she's like i'm not the normal I have a mom and dad. Most of my friends don't have a mom and dad. And it's like, that's that's what we're portraying. And the great irony is that she comes out of the foster care system. You yep. know, she's been through trauma. And I, how many- I get that breeds that breeds some awareness of that, though. You know, I think I think our kids are keenly aware of of that and how blessed they are that they have that because they know what the flip side is. I, I think it makes our kids kinder, more, yeah. more gentler with people, you know, more ready to act and to help because, you know, I, I see that with our children all the time. They're, they're more willing to help someone who's in need. You know, they'll approach the kid that is being bullied or picked on, you know, and they'll stand up for them. And that makes me feel great. And, you know, when I, when I see that in my children, I'm like, I'm doing something here, you know? Um, because so many children aren't willing to stand up for other kids and stuff. And I will say that our kids do a really good job at that. And then when you praise them publicly, because our kids are the same way, they'll stand up to the, to the, they'll stand up to the bully, they'll friend the bullied. And, uh, when you share it publicly, you'll get the parents that are like, ugh, whatever, like, cause they're not teaching their kids that way, yeah. you know? So, so we have to work overtime to make sure our kids are the nicer kids to help the kids that aren't being acknowledged because there are a lot of, there's a lot of excuses and a lot of reasons to why parents don't want to teach their kids to be kinder. It's a lot of work. I notice 
and I hate to say this because I don't want to lump all parents into it. There's a lot of parents that don't want to do the work to put it in, right? Like, yeah, you can't just wake up one morning and have good, kind children. You have to work at that. And as kids that come from the system, we have to work extra hard at that, right? Because the world has already shown them right, that, you have like, to break those patterns, tough. right? It's rough and tough, and you know they could take the the other this other side of this and be the person bullying and doing all that. But you have to put the work into it, and I agree with you about the broken families and living with grandparents, and it, it's become such a norm. That's why the government's starting to take the the kinship money away. That's how normal this is becoming. Well, we're just going to, you know, put them in a kinship care and, you know, their family, they can pay for it. But they also don't understand that, you know, you don't want it. You don't want kids to grow up in their families, their aunts and their grandparents. And that was like I said, I wanted to be the fun aunt. I never wanted to be the mom. I mean, now I want to be the mom. But at, back then, I didn't want to be the mom. I wanted to be the fun aunt. I wanted to take them to concerts and, you know, feed them junk food. and Sugar <laughs> them up and send them home. <laughs> exactly. But exactly. now I, I, I fully understand what you're saying. You know, I, I've been through that on my own with all of my siblings. I was always mom. My brothers right. called me mom. You know, Jason was explaining how we took care of my sister. And, you know, she was my daughter. And that was the thing. I tell Jason all the time. I never learned how to be a sister. Right. I don't know what that role looks like. I don't know right. how to do it. I've always been mom since I was five years old. I have been mom. And right. so you kind of, you grieve that loss because you don't know how to play that role. And it's a role that's been taken away from you that you had no choice in the matter. You know, it just, it got robbed from you and yeah, it, it can be really sad because now that, my siblings are grown. Some of them I don't have a good relationship with. Some of them I do. But I still find myself grasping on how, you know, what my role is. How do I be a sister and not be a mom and like try to mother them because they don't need a mother anymore. You know, they're grown up. They don't need a mom anymore. They, you know, they're trying to come to me as a sister. And I don't know how to be that. Right. It's true. I have, a, like I said, I have a hard time now even being called aunt because it's to me that that I've went through so much trauma with that that title. That that's was, that's that's a sacred role to you. Yeah, it's for for people who are part time, and again, back to the we don't do anything halfway for the, <laughs> for people who are are that part time thing because that role held so much importance to who you were and to the fight that you fought to save the kids. That, that isn't something that has never been something that you took lightly. No. And I, I know you <laughs> pretty, pretty well. And I know that that's not something that when you see people doing it halfway, it's, it, it's, it's not acceptable. Right. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's, I guess that's probably part of how we're how we're all wired a little bit. You know, it's we're doing something that matters, regardless of what all the people who have all the things that they want to say, whether it's you know telling you that you're a saint or whatever, or it's the people who say you're crazy or I can never do that. Whatever their opinion is, you have all these people who have an excuse, a reason why they can't or wouldn't 
But the truth is, is what we're doing with our lives here. Th- this is important. And it's, mm-hmm. it's important for us because it's part of just how we're wired. If somebody's wired to t- help us take care of kids, I mean, my God, come on. Go to the website, whatever, send me an email. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find. You know, get a hold of somebody. Find your local children's division, DFS, DIFUS, CPS, whatever it is you have. There's a way in. But this is we're not inviting the people in who aren't wired for that either. Like, yeah. go find the thing that, that, that sets your soul on fire and make our world better in your way. Yep. But if you're wired for this, man, you, you have the opportunity to help and change so many lives, shape so many young souls. And while you're doing it, like, you live a life that's full of meaning. And most of the kids that we foster will never know about it. You know, most of the kids we, we started with were all very, very young. You know, everywhere from, what was Carl, a few days old? Yeah, he, all the he way was up to um, all the way up to probably about five or six was the oldest one of the youngest, and then we had we had one one teenager that we took in as well, and he'll probably be the only one that really remembers because most of the rest of them, man, they weren't old enough to remember, and I get it, and, and that's okay, but I know that the difference that we'll make will last mm-hmm. for generations in each one of those families. Yeah, talk about yeah. living a life that's worth something. And the need's never been greater, right? I mean, you guys, we've sort of, it's been the subtext of everything we've talked about here. With, with, with the opioid edem- epidemic, with the crime and poverty that's going on, the number of kids who need a good, stable home has never been less. It's, it's, it's astounding. I know when, and when you guys were, and we listened to this the other day when you guys were talking about your origin story. If if one in what four or five families in every church took in one kid, you could clear out the system. It it, it is that right? It's yeah. absolutely that. If if the people that can step up do, if we your family, if our family inspires one person to step forward and take in kids, I mean, you guys have had. I don't know how many dozens of kids through. We've had 18, 19? 18, 19. Through our house. Consider that time exponentially, right? For every one family that steps up, if it's that. And if they reach five of those kids and break that secondary cycle, forget it. We're, 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 you know, we're, it's so important. History is forever changed that way. We never yeah. know what our children will become, where they'll go, where they'll shine a light, where they'll change something, you know, where they'll do something great, you know, and, and like Jason said, most of most of those kids will not remember us, and we may never hear or see what they've done, but they may go off and do great things, and you know what, that that's wonderful, that's all we want, you know, is to be able to offer these kids something beautiful to, to shine a light and show them that not everything is evil and bad. Not everything is going to hurt. There is love out there, you know, and, and people do really love other people, you know, and that's always been my driving force. And Jason said it earlier, you know, I, I've always said, you know, and he knows this because I've said it to him a hundred times. If I haven't said it 300 times, you know, the, my biggest driving force is I will not be my mother. 
You know, I, I have always said I will not be my mother. My children will not know what it feels like to lay their head down at night, not knowing that they're loved. You know, my children will always have that. And any child that walks through my door, I don't care if they're difficult or not, will know that they are loved while they were, while they're here. And they can take that with them. If they don't get to stay and they have to go somewhere else, they will know without a shadow of a doubt while they were here, they were loved. And even after they leave in my heart, I still love them. You know, while they're out going and they don't know it, you know, there's plenty of children that I, you know, I love all my children, even when they're not my children anymore. Yeah, I mean, there, there's there's definitely some some kids that if we got a, a call when we normally don't take a but a certain age range younger than our youngest, just to preserve our birth order here. <clears throat> and um, but there's a handful of kids that if we got a phone call that said, "Hey, we're looking for a placement for this kid that you guys have had," and we'd be, I she, probably she wouldn't would not, even call him. I, I'd call be, him. where do yeah. I come? Where do I meet you? Where do I go? How can I get to you? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just the pull is that strong. Yeah. That those bonds are forever, and, and you know that they feel that too. And that's the power of what we can do as just humans who care about another human. It's true. It's very, very true. So, yeah, it's 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 the old Josh Ships uh, quote, I think it is. You know, every child is one caring adult away from being a success story. Are you willing to be that caring adult? I think we have... Um, <laughs> probably gotten to the end of our notes that <laughs> that's all good it, it's you know it, it's been really great it's it's really nice to speak with people that speak our language because there's not you know, enough have, people that speak our language when i talked to jason when we first spoke on the phone you know we we talked for a two-hour clip there too i believe it he's a talker <laughs> and, but it was that it was you know it was when courtney heard your story and it was wow i'm not crazy yeah you know it's 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 the same thing it's like there are pockets of like-minded people out there in the world and it's it's awesome it's easy to talk to you guys because you guys get it. I don't have to explain. Well, well, this happened in that, you know, like <laughs> you get it. And that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely a, a community that, that has our own language and experiences that, that shapes us in different ways. And that, that's one of the pieces that folks oftentimes don't understand. But, um, but I'll, I'll say that I think that the way that it has shaped us has been almost exclusively for the better. Yeah. Yes. Without question. Us too. Except Us for too. maybe her propensity to like just pick up babies and <laughs> I have a real hard problem saying no. <laughs> but that's all right. Sometimes. Yeah. Can't, we yeah. can't fault you for that. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I, I, I like the babies just fine, so I'll, I'll hang out with them too. I mean, come on. If I got to hang out with a little guy who's just going to lay around and nap all the time, we're going to be best buds. <laughs> we had common interest. <laughs> so, well, it's been great talking with you guys. Um, we really do appreciate you guys coming on here and telling your story. And uh, we'd love to have you guys back on sometime. You know, if you have a story that you really feel needs to be told, I think it'd be great to be able to, to have that, you know, have the time to do that if you guys are interested. And, um, you know, we may even have the opportunity to talk with, with Janelle as well that would be great if she if she's interested and you guys are, are okay with it 
we are more than happy to, to do that because she would have an incredibly unique perspective. I think she'd love to tell her story, honestly. And I think, I think you hit, you hit the nail on the head when you said our kids are kinder for their experiences. And I think when you speak to Janelle, you'll see that Yeah, uh, she is, she, she's got a heart of gold and, and, and has, has Courtney's heart to match. I mean, it's, it's, she's an outstanding young lady. I think a venue for her too, to tell her story would be helpful. She was always the one Elijah could not speak in court, but Janelle would insist at speaking at her court hearings, insist. And at 11 years old, they try to shush you. Right. No, no, you're so young. No. And she would get up there. And she would tell them exactly what went on in that house. She sat in front of her mom and her stepdad and told the court exactly what her stepdad had done and what her mom did to them, to her and her brothers and sisters. And and the courage, I mean, I I like to think of myself as a brave guy, right? I'm a big, rough and tumbled, tattooed up dude, right? I have no bone in my body that is nearly as strong or nearly as brave as that young lady. I was going to say, she sounds like a very strong, courageous young woman. And I, and I think sitting and talking to two other amazing humans, because she considers us to be amazing humans. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And you guys have very similar, because she was listening to the turtle podcast. And she, she really got drawn into it because she could hear that you guys are similar to us. I think she, I think she heard, I think she heard a lot of me in you, Jason, right? The way you were talking to, to turtle, the, the times you'd laugh and the times you'd sort of try to get a little bit more out of him. I think there's (laughs) a, she, she heard a lot of me in you. And I think she'd be comfortable That's awesome. talking to you guys. Yeah. Well, if you think Turtle would be comfortable talking to you, I'll put him in a box and ship him out tomorrow. <laughs> no. You don't know. <laughs> listening, listening to the podcast about Turtle, I when he kept saying, it's complicated. Right. <laughs> I was like, I'm only answering questions now that way. <laughs> you know, I have never heard him say that before that day. And yeah. I was just sitting here. I was editing a podcast. I was editing a file at that point. I said, come here, bud. Hop up on my lap. And I just opened up a new file, hit record, and started talking to him. It was, he was mesmerized because Audacity, the program I use, it shows little waveforms go by as you talk. Yeah. Yep. He was mesmerized watching the waveforms of his own voice. And so he would just sit here and talk. He was just happy to see it. And it just, honestly, that one and um, the interview with him and when I interviewed Janaya, our daughter, uh, those are the two that as I look at the analytics, because I can't see who does what or anything. I can just see what's downloaded and how often. And those two are neck and neck at the very top of the list as to what people have downloaded. So there's something no, about I, that that resonates with people. I listened to the Turtle podcast myself. I made Janelle listen to it because I knew I knew that she I knew that would pull her in, and I listened to it yeah with you, and I listened to it once again on my own. So, <laughs> for the Spotify views <laughs> over here, well, well we yeah. do appreciate that. <laughs> I, I don't know if you had it's a engaging of- content, man. That 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 kid is your your son is is something else. And he's got he's got a spark. 
And he's he's going to be an amazing young man. I don't know if oh, you've yeah. had a chance to listen to the um, uh, what is it, the legacy of Standing with Turtle. It's like a six yep. part. Series. Okay, yeah. so his, I listened to five. I don't think you've got the sixth. Six one is out. up. Six is up now. I, I put five and okay. six up this weekend. Nice. But um, <laughs> but yeah, his story is just so deep, and that's not who he was when he showed up. He was such a different kid, and he's just really grown into his personality. And that's part of I think what I love about that age range. To grow into a personality. Well, that's yeah. the thing. He's got a personality, and, and like his hair, his hair is so crazy. I mean, it's all over the place, and it's crazy. But that—that's his it's thing. He's best. like, "Don't touch my hair. Don't cut my hair." And I'm like, "You know what? You know what, Jericho? We ain't gonna cut your hair. I don't care." Yeah, you know, we I don't just care put what a people bunch say. Of oil I don't care. It, brush it out. You know, we went to the park and... yesterday, and we came home, and I was picking leaves out of it like I'm a mommy. <laughs> you know, I'm pulling so... leaves out and branches, and I was so glad that. I held off on listening to the podcast until we had turned like internet and cable off in our old house and Tom had played it. Right. And I was just so glad that I waited because I didn't want the distractions of everything else around me to get in the way. And I, he kept saying, do you want to listen to another one? And I kept saying yes. Cause I wanted <laughs> to, I want, well, I wanted to respect his story, right? You, you're yeah. respecting his story. You listen to them all. You don't just, Okay, well, I listen. It's great. They sound great. Everything's great. Like, but it, I just love that there was no life distraction, no TV, no internet. Right. It was just you know us and the story to really, you know, I think sometimes people just listen to the surface of things, you know. And it, it was, and plus, I got to connect with people who have legitimately been through things that I've been through, <laughs> and I, it was nice to go to bed that night and finally not feel crazy. <laughs> Well, if it makes you feel any better, I probably won't, but I'm not certain that she's not crazy a little bit. Oh, I'm crazy, but I'm not. <laughs> no, her. I was gonna say, yeah, I'm crazy. I've accepted it. I accepted it long ago. I'm I'm crazy, but I'm okay with it. Yeah. We I'm, have we have very good balance in that where she's crazy, I'm not, and where I'm crazy, she's not. So there's a there's we have a good sort of we yeah. weigh each other out, and, and I can see that. And and I look at you guys, and I'm like, wow, that that's so me and Jason because the places that that I excel at, he doesn't, and vice versa. You know, we what just, do you, mean? I'm you know perfect. what I mean. You're not perfect. Get over yourself. <laughs> oh, that's but why there's Tom just speaking court because he can. I'm over emotional. I would. Yeah, I'm a crier. I'm a crier. <sighs> I would. The second someone was doubting why we were doing, because they would like to doubt it, like, but he could get up there and like stone face it and counteract everything that was going on. I can I can articulate. It's one of the it's one of the things I do at work. I my challenge is to articulate complex technology to clients that don't understand any of it. So I'm <laughs> able to break really complex things down into layman's terms have a fundamental understanding of how it all works, but then also be able to talk to it on, on, at a Lego level for you too. And to do it with a, without a whole lot of extra emotion because that's court. Yeah. It's not about emotion. That's one of the things that it's funny. We go to court and they always want to bring mom up, you know, foster mom up. Does foster mom have anything to say? And they're half the time surprised that foster dad's sitting there. And, and yeah. I, you know, she's, she's doesn't particularly like being on a stand. No, I've done it, but it's not my favorite thing. Send me up there. I'll sit up there and talk to you. I don't care. Yep. And I'll tell you exactly what we had to say and break it down in those pieces that people can understand and do it with a 
serious lack of emotion so they don't come across sound like, oh, they're bad, because that, that, that comes across making you look like yep. the crazy, hateful person. And just tell the story straight and honest. And it's it's that one of my skill sets is also one of my challenges is my ability to pull my own emotion back and sit in a place that sounds like, yeah, like Hannibal Lecter maybe, you know? <laughs> so I've been told. <laughs> well, you know. I, I was... I there's something you said there, though, that's important, right? They're surprised when the foster dad shows up. Yep. Yeah, always. And they were very surprised because every – with as many of our kids as I could, I'd show up for all the hearings because I'm, I'm there too, right? right. I'm, as, I'm, I'm, as, yeah, I'm all in too. It's not just Courtney. It's mm-hmm. not, you know – and, and so many times they just think it's it's the mom, you know, yeah. they, they discredit the father. And and that's the thing. The father is an important role, too, just as important as the mom. But the you foster know. system is primarily run by, you know, social workers who are it's a primarily female dominated role. And yeah. so I think that it's just more comfortable for them to to do that. And they probably I, I don't know, probably they see it more where the moms are way more involved than the dads. And so that's that's just part of how it is. But. Well, and, I mean, we had the foster group. We ran the foster group for a while. And I can't tell you how many times we sat in a foster group with nothing but foster moms. We could not get the fathers to engage. I had we all tried to the do like golf just days. to see me. And, and saying, <laughs> okay, now you're going overboard. I'm, I'm going to push you off your seat here in a minute. You, you guys are going to see Jason f- fall on the floor. Um, <laughs> But no matter what we did, we couldn't get the foster fathers to engage. Every once in a great while, we would have a foster father show up. But 90% of the time, it was just the mothers. We couldn't even get the foster dads in to come in for training because we do training days and stuff. And we could not get them to engage. Anything we did, if we did garage sales to try to, to pull in money, you know, anything, we could not. They just did not engage. And, and it was and kind of frustrating. Well, and- What's what's so terrible about that is that, you know, and, and I think when we talked about sort of the demise of the traditional family, the dads are the ones who aren't there. Yeah. Off times, not all the time. Give give credit where it's due. But a lot of the times it's the dads that are punched out. We're the ones that, you know, no disrespect to our amazing women because I'll get hit. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, Jason is dodging, too. I, I can't reach through the computer, so you're safe. <laughs> but Courtney's got you. Don't worry. <laughs> um, but a lot of times, these broken homes, the men are part uh, are a fundamental part of the problem, whether it's violence, drugs, alcohol, abuse, you name it. You know, there, there are a lot more single women out there raising multiple kids than there are single dads. And, yeah. and the, the fatherhood thing, and you see, we see it in that group. There, there's a there's a serious lack of good dads in the world, and in the foster care system, especially when these kids have been through the trauma. You know, it's like what I was saying with Janelle and Elijah. We need to step up. There, the, there needs to be a positive male role model. Not that you know, in a world where it's just a mm-hmm. a, a great mom doing everything she can, being a great mom and serving both roles. Awesome. But somebody's going to, at some point in their life, come across a man and either model that behavior or have have expectations set from it. And that's, 
it's a shitty place. It's a shitty place where there's not good dads. Yeah. And it's kind of just disappointing that they're not stepping up. And I don't know. I don't know that I have the, the answer. Yeah. Here's what we're going to do to fix that. <laughs> Dang it. I thought you had the answer. No, I don't. I mean, if we did, this would be a much different conversation. It'd be like, hey, by the way, do this now. Right. We're going to go out and get all the deadbeat dads and grab them by the, by the neck and drag them to the town square and flog them once. I mean, Next we can time. do that on game, but Next I don't know that it moves the needles. <laughs> but no, I mean, honestly, I I am so thankful for my husband. You know, I'm thankful that my daughter has a wonderful role model. You know, when she goes out and looks for her partner, you know, she's going to look for someone who is loving and caring and kind, you know, mm-hmm. and, and all the traits that her father has shown her of what a man should be. You forgot devastatingly handsome. I did, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> but she'll know what to look for. And, yeah. and a lot of girls don't have that. You know, and and my sons will know what it's like to be a man and to be a father and how to treat a woman and how to treat their children. You know, so I, I would say that, you know, I'm lucky to have found such a great partner, even if he is devastatingly handsome, as he puts it. <laughs> No, and that's that's part of our part of our role as men, I think, and it's it's up to the real men to stand up and take that challenge on, that to know that our job is is to create the next generation. You know, it goes it goes all the way back through history. You know, as far as I can, as you can look into history, that that's always been a thing. It's up to the men to build the next generation. You know, and unless we take that job seriously. Yeah, we probably need to go get. Okay. Okay. Grab turtle. She's gonna go grab turtle. Hey, <laughs> one off the bus. His bus will be by soon. But yeah, <laughs> unless we build that that next generation, we can't be surprised when the problems continue. Yeah, you know, and we can do that either with our own kids or the kids that we have the opportunity to speak into their lives. Whether that's foster kids, adopted kids, the kids in the neighborhood. You know, my my son has a couple friends who live over here who came over recently one day and. And um, we had a uh, we had a conversation about some things. Uh, he was, and I realized, yeah, these kids have never had a man who showed up in their house in their life every day, went to work, took care of them, took care of their mom. Yeah, that's just it's not a thing in their mind. They've never even imagined that because they've never seen it. Yeah, and so it's a place I, I have the ability to speak into those lives a little bit. Now I don't have control over it. I have a little bit of influence, and maybe just maybe that'll make the difference. But we just spread our, our spread our influence out as far as we can and try to, to change the next generation because that's all we can do because my kids are going to live in a generation with all these other broken kids. And these broken kids are, like you said earlier, are usually broken by someone who was broken before them. Yeah. You know, to kind of paraphrase a, an old statement, you know, broken people break people. That's where it comes from. It's yeah. not until we're willing to step in and be the ones to attempt to build something different that that will be, that will change. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on here today and we will talk to you soon. I'm sure. Definitely. Have a good one, brother. Thanks a lot. Thanks to everyone for listening all the way through. If you're trying to find us on a specific podcasting platform, just search for Jason and Amanda Palmer. 
or foster care an unparalleled journey. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or anywhere where you find your podcast. You can also download it so that you can listen wherever you're at, even when you aren't online. You can find us online at jasonmpalmer.com where you can read our blog and listen to all of our previous podcasts. If you have a story that you'd like to tell on the show, please send me an email at jasonmpalmer at yahoo.com and be sure to put podcasts in the subject line or send me a message through our Facebook page at Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey. We'll see you next time.